Sir Balpern, if you want to brass some Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance in the program. He is the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. I particular note this week, a primer of sorts, a primer or a primer or a primer of the collective bargaining agreement between the players' union and the owners, or the league and the owners. I, as a host, have taken great pains to insulate myself from any substantive information regarding these CBA negotiations, and in so doing have made myself the exact right candidate to ask questions about it from a totally ignorant perspective. Not unlike Jerry Seinfeld, I asked Dave Cameron, what is the deal with the international draft? Will it exist? Will it not exist? What about qualifying offers? Will they still have a draft pick attached to them? And what about the 26th man? Dave Cameron says, if you don't want it to be a relief pitcher, it needed to be a relief pitcher. We also discussed Mitch Haniger, who was sent from Arizona to Seattle. Josh Reddick, whom I declare is a good signing for the Houston Astros. And Dave Cameron comments on what is and what is not a sport. Yeah, I mean, it's fun to watch guys who aren't good at something succeed at that thing, right? Like some some Joe Schmo out of the uh, stands hits a half-court shot and wins college tuition. Eh, that's fun. Do I want to watch, like, let's make a sport of guys, like uh, truckers, shooting half-court shots? No, that's not a league. That exact audio passage in what's to follow. What's following most immediately, however, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. What else is there in this world besides work and hassle? There's also SeatGeek.com, which removes the work and the hassle from the purchase of event-related tickets. How do they do it? I don't know entirely. However, this ad copy in front of me suggests that what they do is they pull tickets available at all the other sites, presumably on the Internet, into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. And what else they do is they assess a grade to every ticket based on value, so that like, and this is improvising, this is half improvising, so that like an early 21st century GM, you can exploit inefficiencies in the market. And best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Unlike StubHub, which I'll say like that, StubHub, SeatGeek will show you the actual price from the beginning to the end of a transaction. And furthermore, listeners who have endured this receive a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. Here is how you claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code into the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. FANGRAPHS. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today for your nearest possible convenience. With which we have reached the end of the sponsor's message and nearly the end of the introduction. There's only this to say. What is it? It's FANGRAPHS Audio. Who does the feature? Managing editor Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? right now. Not like deciding who to like based on their income. Okay. Hey, perfect time for a segue, Dave Cameron. Okay. Talking about someone's income. Uh, the uh, Baseball Players Association and MLB itself will be, uh, well, they're working towards, I suppose, a collective bargaining agreement, although uh, one has not been reached as of uh, this recording. Yeah, Monday morning-ish. Yeah. And um, most of what the questions, most of the questions I'm going to ask you, at least during the first half of our conversation, 
I believe will concern the collective bargaining agreement. And here is a situation, Dave Cameron. Sometimes I ask you questions, and maybe I know the answer, or maybe I have some inkling as to the answer. Uh, what I have practiced here, however, is willful ignorance, <laughs> willful and sustained ignorance with regard to the collective bargaining agreement so that my questions can be authentic. Is that what you're going to entitle your memoir? Willful ignorance? Willful and sustained ignorance. Well, yeah, I think the sustained part is – because it's difficult because if you – especially as someone who edits baseball articles you know, for, a lot, for much of his day – it, I could accidentally run into some of the answers. Yeah, but somehow you managed to remain in the dark, even <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the first question I want to ask you again would be purely uh, purely logistical, um, but it concerns a it concerns a paragraph or at least a passage from a an article that John Heyman wrote for Fan Rag Sports. Okay. John Heyman is looking at. Uh, has some information regarding the negotiations between the players and the owners. And it, and it seems to be that the players are – there's some rumor that the owners might be willing to remove draft pick compensation from the qualifying offer. Correct. Okay. He says this. Mm-hmm. He says this. Major League – MLB bigwigs. He wrote bigwigs. Mindful of the huge benefit won by management with the establishment of the qualifying offer system of agency, have offered to eliminate direct compensation in the form of draft pick loss for signing for top free agents. That would, in effect, take the legs out of an onerous qualifying offer rule that a player source said has cost players as much as $1 billion in compensation under the current five-year agreement. That is maybe even, not true. But anyway, maybe go ahead, even, go ahead. Okay, maybe even $1.5 billion. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and uh, I was going to say, it seemed like a very high number. It's crazy pants to me. And I guess, uh, and and so <clears throat> so this, of course, is something that apparently players would uh, would be receiving, and but then they would have to give up. Is they would have to concede to or agree to an international draft, which brings up a whole another question, right? It's um, and one because typically the players have not supported, have not protected prospects much, amateur prospects that much, because uh, those players are not in the union. And so let's begin there, and I guess let's begin with the first comment that you could not contain, which is that uh, that seems like a high estimate. That is uh, a ridiculous, uh, terrible economic calculation (laughs) built to push an agenda. Uh, okay. That's like when this one says, like, oh, if the Olympics comes to your town, it's worth, like, $20 trillion in economic stimulus. Uh, those numbers are made up in order to get the Olympics to come to your town or to fund a publicly, sports, uh, publicly funded sports stadium. They say, if we build this giant, uh, you know, sports stadium that we don't really need, we'll get billions of dollars in revenues. Like, assuming... Basically, the way they take these calculations is to say, like, oh, okay, uh, all the people who go out to eat before they go to the game, we're going to count all that money as, like, new money. Those people apparently were going to starve to death if we didn't build the stadium. Uh, they were not going to eat. They were not going to purchase groceries. They were not going to do anything else besides go to a sport. They were going to sit at home and starve and wither. And uh, so all of their spending is counted towards the stadium at 100% of credit, which is insane. This is the same thing, right, where if you say... Ian Desmond would have gotten $75 million 
as a free agent, but instead he got eight. So that's $67 million. And then you should add those up over and over and over and act like the teams didn't spend the money they didn't give money in Desmond on anyone else. Uh, the idea that like what Major League Baseball payroll last year was like three and a half billion dollars. So we're saying like, we think the qualifying offer, which has been extended to, what, in the, in the five, four years it's existed, it's been extended to less than 100 players. Uh, we're thinking that would have added 40% of the total expenditure on major league players, uh, based on the, the spending that was reduced for those 100 players or 80 players, whatever it was. That's wrong. That's insane. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's a high number, and this is probably someone, as you say, with a motive, yeah. Um, who this was, was an uh, agent or someone uh, on the on the player side trying to push their agenda, right? And their agenda is that uh, they do not want to have qualifying or to have a draft pick attached to the qualifying offer. Correct. Right, and this this is reasonable that they would not want this. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you're an agent of a player who got a qualifying offer, and especially like a Dexter Fowler or Ian Desmond or one of these guys, Kendris Morales or Stephen Drew, uh, by the way, who happen to be represented by the same guy, uh, who's happened to, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Uh, you are not a big fan of this system because it cost a couple of your clients some money, and that money was just redistributed to other players. Okay. Uh, what, what do you think if you were to estimate what it actually cost? Because how, how many players? You said how many? You said about forty players have been extended. Uh, uh, I think it's been like between ten and twenty per year, and we've done it for four years, right? So okay. we're like, but probably like sixty or eighty players have gotten a qualifying offer, something like that. Okay, all right. And like, and, what like six or seven of them have taken it. So, right. Do Do you so far um, Do you so far regard the qualifying offer as an improvement over the previous like Type A Type B free agents? Yeah, because that thing was a disaster of epic okay. proportions. That thing was insane. So this right. is better. It's not great, but it's better. Right. The players still do not particularly care for it. One assumes. Well, well, in the idea, of, this is a dumb question, but uh, as I say. I've really, I've really avoided any consideration of this. Carson, as I always say, there are no dumb questions. There are only dumb people who ask questions. <laughs> what is the the player's ideal assessment would be, or the, their ideal situation uh, would be to just enter free agency with no strings attached? Yeah, I mean, so draft pick compensation is a, is a tax designed to drive down the salaries of some players. That's what it's there for. Major League Baseball can talk all they want about competitive balance. But it's a tax on player salaries in order to reduce the price of those players. Um, so Major League Baseball players would love to have that tax go away because their idea is that if they take that tax away, then that money will just get transferred to them instead. So when teams are signing, um, you know, what would have been qualifying offer free agents or might still be considered qualifying offer free agents, they'll be like, well, we were paying a $10 million tax beforehand. Let's just give this player $10 million. And he'll be like, great, I get a raise. Um, so that's basically what the players are looking at it is like, let's remove the tax and then the money will flow down to us. It's just not quite that simple. If you are a player, of course, of course, if you're traded in in your final year before free agency, um, you you are not subject to the qualifying offer. Correct. So you, as a player, you really would like to be traded in that final year. It sets up a huge incentive to uh, try and get traded midseason. Yeah. Right. And so you so is it a tactical advantage to sign a contract with a team that you know is going to be far out of contention? I mean, if you're signing one of these one-year contracts, like say you're a guy trying to sign a bounce-back deal, um, maybe you're a Carlos Gomez, someone like that, it's not a bad idea to pick a team that you say, like, maybe the Atlanta Braves. Not that they think they need outfielders, but, you know, a, a non-contender, the San Diego Padres, and say, I will sign with you for a discount, you know, 
skipping eight, nine million bucks. Maybe I can get a two year deal from someone else, but I'm gonna take a one year deal from you on the understanding that you're probably going to trade me this summer. That's good for you. You get prospects. That's good for me. I don't get a qualifying offer next summer. Um, more, most likely no one's gonna do that because everyone thinks the qualifying offer system is going away in some form, but in past years that wouldn't have been a bad idea. Okay, so what, so if it is going away in some form, what, are there any suggestions as to what it will look like? Yeah, so I think the the expectation, uh, and certainly from the player side, the hope is that um, there might be still a qualifying offer uh, for teams to get some kind of compensation in a terms of like a supplemental round pick, but the uh, signing team won't lose their pick anymore. That's really the big bone of contention here: is the players don't want um, teams to be disincentivized from signing free agents. So instead of you know twenty to 20 of the teams losing their first round pick if they sign a qualifying offer free agent, that goes away and the team that loses the player just gets a, you know, the 35th pick of the draft just for fun. Okay, and this happens in other in other situations too, right? Where uh, essentially a draft pick comes out of thin air? Yes, right. And and that's that was actually part of the old system too is um you would sign uh like if you I think it was when they had a type A uh you would get a supplemental pick and the other team's picks you'd get two picks for signing for uh for losing a player and that was the type A those were the yeah, essentially the, the equivalent rules. of yeah. players how many how many type A type A free agents were there typically there were a lot more because the system was screwy. I remember there were a lot of relievers. Like that was the big problem. Is like these relief pitchers would get hit with a Type A free agency uh, because the calculations were silly, and uh, obviously no one wanted to pay um, kind of the tax in order to sign those guys, and so they got stuck. And they were, you know, the relievers were the Dexter Fowlers or the Ian Desmonds or the or the Kendris Moraleses of the old old time. Okay. <clears throat> Perhaps we'll come back to this question of qualifying offers, but we were talking about this draft pick associated with the qualifying offers. As a possible, as, as a possible bargaining chip, in, in also in, with regard to the international draft, a hypothetical <coughs> international draft. Right now, this is not. We're not even going to consider for the moment the potential logistical problems of such a thing. Okay, which there are many. Which there are many. Um, why? Why am I just when I look into myself? Why am I inherently opposed? to an international draft. Why do uh, I assume it's a bad idea? Well, I think um, in kind of the analytical circles, uh, it's generally accepted that the point of the draft is not for competitive balance, it's to hold down salaries. It's kind of the same <laughs> as the qualifying offer. Uh, or the and, actual draft. Right. And this is, this is what the draft is there for, is to um, remove market-based competition from... Uh, player leverage so that teams can sign amateur free agents much cheaper than they would otherwise. So if you believe that to be true, which I I think is pretty well established at this point, um, and you have some sense of fairness about players who uh, you think should receive something like a market wage, just like most other people in America, then you think a draft is a, you know, limitation on human being rights. And so you could say, well, these are a privileged class of super talented players, and maybe I don't actually care if they get $2 million or $10 million because they're rich anyway. But the reality is the draft takes away um, rights that other people have in order to shop their services around and go to the highest bidder, and it's uh, it's not exactly American. Right, and the other problem maybe is, is you say it's not exactly American. Um, 
obviously, it's not as though uh, the United States is without poverty. That's a problem that exists. Yep. However, I think it's probably also fair to say that the <clears throat> the sort that the sort of poverty that exists in the in certain of the players um, from which out of which international free agents are signed, yeah. uh, like the Dominican Republic, for, for example, or Venezuela, um, or uh, I'm sure certain you know certain players have come out of Colombia. Like poverty is like is like a is like a reality there. Yeah, it's a much much larger problem. Right, and so we're going from one. We're going from a system that's that is to a certain degree, well, to a certain degree that is exploitative, and it, it seems as though it, it, as a um, what, what's the Pelotero is that this documentary yeah, Pelotero, which, yeah. which tracks uh, Miguel Sano and then the other player who's um, less famous than Miguel Sano, <laughs> uh, and um, and all the ways in which we, we saw all the ways in which Sano was manipulated by. Um, by organizations and uh, and the various uh, you know in the in the, the the system that also creates these sort of high powered trainers, um, we saw that that sort of manipulation and this seems to be another another layer added onto that that would um, essentially exploit these players for their talents. Well, so I think this is one of the things that's tricky, right? Is like the international system is already broken, so it's not like we're taking a not corrupt. Uh, you know, system that runs really well and is equitable to the players and replacing it with a draft that limits their ability to shop themselves around and will limit their compensation. Like, the system in place is already bad for the players, especially for players um, uh, who happen to be taken advantage of by less than scrupulous um, Buscones. And so um, I think Major League Baseball... Uh, has kind of, for the last 20 years, turned a blind eye to a lot of stuff that's happening overseas. Um, and so now maybe they're interested in repairing the system. The question is, is the draft actually an improvement? And would it be an improvement? And how would it work? Because we're not going to talk about the logistics of it. It's kind of more of a, a question of, of fairness, right? So like a, the thing that's generally brought up with an international draft is if you are a 17-year-old born in Mexico or um, you know, the Dominican Republic or one of these countries uh, where you're not subject to the draft but you can sign at an earlier age, you can make millions and millions of dollars. Where if you're born in Miami, you have to go wherever a team drafts you and you're, um, you can sign for whatever they offer you or you can go to college and, and you have significantly fewer options. And, and teams don't really like the idea of paying dramatically more to a, you know, say a 19-year-old Cuban than they would to a 19-year-old uh, American or a 19-year-old Japanese player or anything else and like the size of your contract being based on where you're born is seems unfair and so that's kind of the argument for let's have the same system for everybody and then everybody can get about the same amount of money regardless of where they're born um, so I think you can make an argument for the international draft from that perspective the question is <laughs> would it work and uh, probably not <laughs> okay and we'll get to some of the difficulties in a second uh, one question that has occurred to me previously and has uh, once again occurred to me is that Canada is a foreign country. Yeah. And yet its players are subject to the uh, to the draft. D- do you have any sense of why that is? Not, so I don't, I'm not a draft historian where I know like, <laughs> oh, yeah, at this point, this is when this country was adopted into the draft. Right. Um, so I don't know for sure, but I, I do know that like the – 
agreements that Major League Baseball has reached with various foreign leagues have been patchwork, right? Like, it's not like they went to every foreign league around the world or foreign country and said, let's come up with a universal way of getting your players here. So if you were a Cuban, you had to get smuggled off in a boat and, like, establish residency in some other country, and then you could try and sign as a free agent. If you Not were, a streamlined process. Right. If you were Japanese, you were you're, you belong to the NPB for nine years if, if you're drafted by their league, um, and then you can't come to Major League Baseball unless they post you. Uh, if you're Canadian, you go through the draft. Um, if you're born in Mexico, they can sell your contract. Um, you know, so I think there's just a whole lot of different systems based on the geography, and that's one of the things that would be tricky about an international draft is, I mean, do, do Japanese players have to go through the draft? Like, would Ichiro have had to be a draft choice? What about, uh, you know, Koji Uehara? If you have a 36-year-old reliever from, from Japan, and they're like, yeah, I want to go try Major League Baseball. Are they going through the draft? Like, I don't know how this would work. Now, now again, so, so in, in terms of just the, the most basic... Um, logistical um, elements of implementing an international draft, at the very basic level, would teams essentially just be, would they just be selecting the right to sign the player? Well, yeah. I mean, you can't force a player to sign with you, right? So, like, you could draft the rights to Shohei Otani and be like, oh, okay, great. I might have the next Babe Ruth on my hands. And then he's like, nah, I don't think that you're offering me enough money. I'm just going to stay in Japan. So, um, right, you are... And it's the same with, you know, the current amateur draft in, in Major League Baseball. Uh, if you draft a college guy and he's a junior, he can be like, well, pay me more money or I'm going back to school. So you, you are drafting the ability to negotiate a contract, but the player doesn't have to sign the contract. Right. And, and so and, and that's true. It, it occurs to me by looking at a possible implementation of an international draft that actually helps me to understand what's actually going on in the, the current amateur draft system, which is really your your – the team is selecting the right to sign the player. Now, obviously, in most cases, in the domestic draft, the player says, okay, actually, I mean, you, you know, frequently you see them and I mean, they put on, no, I guess it's basketball. Do, in baseball, do they put on the hat? Do they put on the hat? Uh, they, so the, the major baseball has started inviting some players to the actual draft room in Secaucus, and, like, I think Mike Trout famously attended, uh, and so they can sit there, and they can, like, run up on stage and hold up a jersey, but it's uh, a very small number. Right, it's a small number. It's not the same sort of spectacle, yeah. because they're also, I mean, we're, we're up to 40, is it 40 rounds now? 36, maybe? We're down, like to, down to 40. It used to be 50, so right. we've cut down on how many rounds there are. It might only be 30 now, uh, but also, like, players are much less secure in where they're going to go. Like, in basketball or football, it's like this guy is a is going to go somewhere between one and six. So you might not know exactly where, or two and seven, or whatever. In baseball, uh, you ask for too much money, and all of a sudden the first rounder falls to the twenty third round or something. You don't want to be on camera being like, "Well, I'm still sitting here because I asked for double my slot." <laughs> and it, what the twenty third round is the third day, right? Right. Yeah, that'd be like Saturday. <laughs> the guy is like, "Can I go to the bathroom yet?" So like, like, <laughs> catering over here. We're... Um. Okay, so right, so that so essentially, the teams are acquiring the rights to sign the player, the exclusive rights. Yeah. So the the other twenty nine teams cannot sign that player at least for whatever, however many months it is, or maybe the calendar year or whatever until the next draft, I guess. Um, and that's that's what would be happening in international draft. But as you mentioned, <clears throat> player, you're, you're talking about signing. You know, you you could sign a sixteen year old uh, from the Dominican Republic of Venezuela. Whereas frequently, you know, with regard to Japan, you're not get you're not getting most players until 
until either after they're 30 years old. Yeah, or at least in their mid-20s. Right. And, yeah. they're, and they're obviously, especially if you're talking about a, a high-profile free agent, for example, when you Darvish was a free agent, um, you're talking about a player who's going to be expecting quite a bit more money. Right. And it is going to, is going to be expecting to sign a major league deal, which, uh, to the best of my knowledge, in the... Uh, yeah, you're not allowed to do it in the draft anymore. Right, because I think, what, was it was it Strasburg? Was he part of the last, or one of the last classes? Yeah, he, where he you might have been one of the last, yeah. Were you allowed to sign a player to a, to a major, major league? league so, so say, uh, so Otani is a huge um, is a huge prospect in Japan right now, right? Yeah. I mean, he's not the a prospect t- over there. He's the best player over there. He's the best player, but he's also quite young. Yeah, yeah. He? He's, what, 20 or 19 or something? And he's, he's one of the best hitters and best pitchers. Right. He's, yeah, Bryce Harper and... You Darvish put together, right? Uh, so, so he exists. Yeah, and uh, but he's not going to he's not going to sign. He's going he's going to want to sign for roughly as much money as he can make in Japan, and maybe or maybe like other Japanese players, take a slight discount for the with the privilege of uh, of playing in the major leagues. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the logistical issues. Is like, let's say there was an international draft. And you're Shohei Otani, you're going to be one of the biggest stars in Japanese history. If you stay over there, they can pay you a lot of money. Uh, if you come to the U.S. Uh, as a free agent, you probably get a couple hundred million bucks. I wouldn't be shocked if his contract, including posting fee, was $250 million. I mean, when we look at what players have gotten and and his talent and, and age, he, he, would, he might be worth, you know, a, a th- even $300 million. He would get a lot of money uh, as a free agent. Say the number one draft pick... Uh, internationally, got something like the same slot bonus as the domestic player, his bonus would be like seven or eight million dollars. Uh, and then he would be under contract to the team that acquired him for six years, uh, and he, the first three would be pre-arbitration years, and then he'd get three arbitration years. So, uh, so say he played well, and in his arbitration years he gets forty million dollars or something like that. So basically, Otani would get like fifty million dollars over six years. He would make more than that staying in Japan. So, do we want to uh, dissuade players like Shohei Otani from coming to Major League Baseball? Absolutely not. Do we want to just have to say, okay, well, the draft doesn't work for this kind of player. He's an exception. Well, okay, when do you get to be an exception? When you're 21, 22, 23, 26? Like, at what point do we draw the line and be like, you don't have to go through the draft anymore? And then, okay, now we lose Shohei Otani until some certain point at which his market value, which is a couple hundred million dollars more than his value would be going through the draft, uh, justifies him coming over. Um, and I think it's not just in Japan that this would be an issue. You could have this in any other country in the world, especially with Cuban players. Um, we've seen like, you know, Cuban stars coming over. At what point would they say, okay, now it makes sense for me to just wait through the draft um, because the draft is so restrictive on my earnings relative to my market value. And what is the current, uh, right now, what is the current age at which that happens? So right now, uh, if you're 22 or younger, you are subject to signing bonus pool restrictions. Uh, if you're 23 or older, you aren't. So that's kind of the magic line at which if you're 18, you're probably not going to wait Four more years, especially because at that point you're in, you know, most guys aren't Shohei Otani. Um, they're not looking at a market valuation where they would be dramatically higher if they waited four years, um, in order to get out of the bonus pool situations. We've also seen that, you know, like with Yuan Moncada, if you are a special enough talent, bonus pool restrictions don't really restrict you from keeping, from making a whole lot of money. Yuan Moncada got $30 million, uh, from the Boston Red Sox as a 
what, 17-year-old, 16-year-old. So if you're, I guess, 18-year-old, whatever he was, um, if you're good enough, the system still allows teams to just blow, kind of the blow the signing pool away and pay you a lot of money. That wouldn't happen in an international draft. And then you say, what do we do with Yohan Mankata's or Shohei Otani's? If they, if they are too good for the system, then the system doesn't work. Hmm. So, okay, with regard to the bonus pools, are those going to exist in the next CBA, do you think? Uh, I think, I think the bonus pools as they exist now will not be in place. Major League Baseball will likely try to change the system in some way. Uh, they obviously want to go to a draft. I think if they don't get a draft, they'll probably move away from the pool idea and just go to maybe slot recommendations like they have with um, with the draft instead of saying like, okay, here's here's this, you know, you get not $12 million, spend it however you want. They might say no player can sign for more than $4 million before you, you know, have some kind of tax and the tax will get significantly more stringent than it was previously. Okay. And what has generally been the ranges for the bonus pools? Are they equal for every team or is it no, based on? No, it's, it's based on uh, prior season win loss record. So they're, um, I think like the top teams get bonus pools between like 10, 10, 12 million, 15 million, maybe something like that. And the, the, the teams that won the year before get like uh, 2 million, 2.5 million. Okay. All right. And is there any consideration in the bonus pools for like market size, revenue, anything like nope, that? No, it's just based on win-loss record. So if you're a small market team that wins, we punish you anyway, which is silly. Right. But then, it, and then of course, the, the other danger, right, is teams feigning uh, poverty when, in fact, uh, they might actually have quite a bit of money with which to work. Well, if you do it based on market size that has nothing to do with revenues, then they're, they can feign all they want. We could be like, hey, look, you play in a really big city. You have revenue potential. If you're not turning that into actual revenue, that's on you. You're an idiot. Uh, learn how to make some money and take some marketing classes. Is there any way, is there any way in terms of uh, looking at market size to adjust for essentially how popular baseball is or isn't in that region? I mean, that would be one of the arguments, right? Like, so like maybe the, the Marlins would be like, well, you know, we're in Miami, but, uh, you know, people here are more interested in basketball because we have the broad for a while or they're more interested in football because of the Dolphins' tradition or something like that. Right. Um, so they would be like, well, you can't just look at our population and our, you know, the number of corporations that are here and the, the total wealth of the city and extrapolate that, you know, every city is going to have the same relationship to baseball. But you could still come up with an algorithm that, you know, at least gets close and says, like, this is your expected revenues, um, you know, and if you're, if you're not reaching those tough nuggets, we're not giving you money to make up for the fact that you're not tapping into your fan base. Well, tough nuggets. I don't know about that, Dave. Tough nuggets. That should be the actual CBA lingo. <laughs> the okay, that was the bonus pool. What other crap are we dealing with? I know one thing you mentioned is the twenty-six man. That's gonna. It's a consideration. Who wants the twenty-six man? The players or the owners or both? Uh, so the the owners want to get away from the forty-man rosters in September. So they are tired of, and you know, team. I think everyone is kind of tired of. 35-man rosters with 15-man pitching staffs and September baseball being so different than the rest of the year. So they proposed to limit that to like 28 or 29 players in September. Um, you can maybe still call up all of your 40-man guys and have them hang around, but of that, only like 28 could be active. So it would be a small roster increase instead of the large one we have now. Players Association said, that's fine, we'll give you that, but because you're taking away service time from our members, because these guys who get called up in September get service time, we need to offset that loss of service time. So give us one roster spot for five months, and that will essentially make sure that you're not reducing the amount of service time handed out to players throughout the year. Ah, okay. And so, therefore, 
But in, you know, you're concerned, and I think other people are concerned that this will just be used to to roster another relief pitcher, so that it really uh, that pitching becomes even more specialized, more pitching changes, more dead time during a baseball game. But Dave Cameron says, why do why don't we just restrict the number of pitchers the team can roster? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like whenever the 26th man is brought up, people are always like, oh, great, another relief pitcher. And it's like, well, there's no real reason Major League Baseball can't just put in a rule that says you're only allowed to carry 13 pitchers. <laughs> like, like if we're going to change the size of the rosters, there's no real reason we can't change the composition of the rosters too and say, you know, we're going to now define for you that you can only carry this many position players and this many pitchers. And, um, you know, uh, essentially limit the ability of managers to be like, I want a third side-arming lefty one-out guy who I can bring in in the fourth inning now and start playing the matchups even earlier, which no one really wants. Is Christian Betancourt going to throw any innings this year? Yeah, so I think uh, he's one of the people that, the, one of the names that people brought up when um, you kind of proposed the idea of like a position player or pitcher definition and you can only have so many. What do you do with guys like Christian Betancourt who's probably going to pitch and hit next year? Um, I don't think it's that hard to define a position player or a pitcher based on their prior usage. And you can say, like, uh, if you want a player who kind of swings between both of these and can be listed as a position player but you teach him how to pitch, that's fine. Uh, and it, or if you want to have a p- pitcher like Madison Mumgardner who pinch hits for you once in a while, that's fine too. Um, you can use the guy outside of the way he's labeled, but he has to be designated as one or the other, and we're going to designate that based on his history and like common sense, right? Like, we can look at Madison Bumgarner and be like, yeah, he hit 100 times last year, but he's a pitcher. And so... Yeah, well, maybe you could say, like, has he... Does he have more plate appearances or more batters faced? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to just set up a criteria and say, like, the categorization of a pitcher's... of a player's position will be based on actual playing time on right. one side of the ball or the other. And you could have some kind of uh, past waiting formula where it's like, you know, if a guy gets three at-bats in the game in the first game of the season, uh, but he's a pitcher, we look at his prior record and be like, well, he threw 200 innings last year and he only hit 12 times. So we think he's still <laughs> a pitcher, uh, regardless of, you know, the, the sample of the opening day or whatever. Um, so I don't think it would be that hard to actually just design a, a system that categorized these players. And then if that leads to teams saying, okay, well, if I'm limited to uh, on this number of position players, so I want to have one of these swing guys. Whatever. Those guys are fun. Who doesn't want to see more two-way players oh, in baseball? Oh, I agree, yes. And I think everyone agrees. It's fun. Yeah, those guys are great. So, you know, I'm all for creating a rule that leads to more Christian Betancourt. So that's not a bad thing. Do you think – what do you prefer to watch? Do you prefer to watch pitchers batting or batters pitching? Uh, well, I, so I think we – I probably prefer to watch batters pitching, but it's – Probably because it's a novelty. Like, if I had to watch batters pitch every game, that would get old. That would get old. So I don't want to watch guys suck at their... I don't want a guy... I don't want to regularly watch guys do something they're not good at. Right. You don't want to watch that, right? Yeah. Although when... It is also true that when Bartolo Colon, for example, gets a hit, the, the payoff is like, you know, like that one hit is worth like three home runs for another hitter. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to watch guys who aren't good at something succeed at that thing, right? Like some some Joe Schmo out of the stands hits a half-court shot and wins college tuition. Eh, that's fun. Do I want to watch, like, let's make a sport of guys, like truckers shooting half-court <laughs> shots? No. That's not a league. That's, that's a good point. You don't. You don't, you don't want to do that, Dave yeah. Cameron. Uh, all right. Well, 
I don't think we've we have not exhausted this conversation about the CBA, but I do want to ask you about uh, one other thing before you go, and so I will proceed on to that. D- 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 how much did I miss about the CBA? Is I mean, ninety-eight percent of it. But that's okay. When it's signed, uh, we can talk about it next week because next week we'll actually have details of what's in it. Oh, I was thinking. Or we'll talk next week about a lockout. One of the two. I was thinking uh, on the topic of a lockout. Maybe I should republish Nathaniel Gro's post yeah. regarding the. You think I should do that? Uh, that's not a bad idea. Let's conduct some business here, Dave. Okay. Should let's I, should let's I do that? rerun Nathaniel's piece because it's good. Okay, and what do I do? I put it back to draft, and then I hit publish, and I schedule for time, and it publishes yeah, again. Exactly. And it'll tweet out. Yeah. All right. This has been a brief, a brief business meeting. That's how WordPress works, people. During the middle uh, of the now. Uh, just a quick thing about the trade: Taiwan Walker and Kettle Marte. Going to Arizona. You call him Kettle, like pot and kettle. What do you call him, Kettel? Kettel, yeah. Oh, fine. I don't care. Kettel versus Jean uh, for Jean Segura. I was going to say John Segura. Not John Segura. John Segura, an impressionist painter. All right, uh, Mitch Hanniger, outfielder Mitch Hanniger, and uh, Zach Curtis. <clears throat> you wrote about it. People can read it, read your thoughts on it. I guess my one question is, what does this begin to tell us about? New Arizona general manager Mitch Haniger and yeah, Mitch Haniger is running the Diamondbacks. He's, <laughs> he's that Mike Hazen, change. Mike same same initials. Mike Hazen. Mike Hazen. Yeah, uh, a little easier to yeah. say. And I, I guess I, I said Haniger because I'm thinking this is a lot of the a lot of the what success of the trade from each team's perspective is it's a little bit of a bet on how good Mitch Haniger is. To oh, some extent. I mean, the Diamondbacks wouldn't look at it that way. The Diamondbacks would look at it as they're betting on Taiwan Walker. So they're betting on his upside, his potential, and saying, look, if this guy becomes a, you know, frontline starter and we get four years of team control of a 24-year-old potential, you know, frontline pitcher, we win this trade in a, in a landslide. Even if Segura remains good, whatever, it's two year, two more years of Segura and Haniger was our fourth outfielder, even if Haniger's got some talent, you trade your fourth outfielder in two years of a shortstop coming off a career year for a 24-year-old potential frontline guy every day of the week. So that's the Diamondbacks' position. They're betting on Taiwan Walker. From the Mariners' perspective, I think they are betting on Haniger to some degree. Uh, obviously, they wanted Segura, who's going to be the you know the headline guy in the deal. But I think when you kind of look at Haniger and, and as I wrote in the post, this looks like the kind of guy who you could speculate as. You know, the kind of guy who gets undervalued a lot is not necessarily um, a top prospect. He's not going to show up on a lot of lists. He's a little bit older. I think he's 26. Um, a lot of his offensive surge came in the PCL and hitter ball, hitter-friendly ballparks in the PCL, so it's easy to write him off. But if the defense is as good as some people thought it was uh, late in the season and and then some of the hitting changes he's made um, working with Bobby Tewksbury, who was the guy who helped Josh Donaldson yes. and helped A.J. Pollock and helped um, a bunch of other guys, if he's a late bloomer offensively and he's a plus defensive outfielder, maybe maybe Jerry Depoto just got himself Cole Calhoun 2.0. Right. Or I was thinking another comp in terms of the um, overall would be like a, like a Steven Souza. Yeah, I think they would the, probably hope for a healthier version. Of Sousa. Has Sousa been injured? Uh, Sousa's been injured a lot, yeah. Sousa's been injured a lot. But yeah, I mean, Sousa's an interesting, like, he was another guy who was a little bit of an older prospect, but toolsy and kind of had a big breakout season. And Steven Sousa, uh, highly coveted at the time, brought back Trey Turner and Joe Ross. Uh, not, not a bad oh, little deal true? for the Nationals. Is that true? Wow. Yeah, so, uh, I think, 
Hanniger's the kind of guy where, um, as Eric Longenhagen wrote it, noted when he wrote him up, that he's a, he's a toolsy guy. This isn't like a, you know, some 5'9 slap hitter, uh, or this is a stats versus scouts. This is a former first round pick who has plus power and plus speed and could maybe play center field. Um, the question is about, you know, will he make enough contact in order to be a, a, a solid player? And is he getting kind of typecast as that? Well, he's not quite a normal center fielder, uh, based on size and speed. And he doesn't look like a slugging corner outfield, you know, middle of the order guy. So we're just going to call him a fourth outfielder because he doesn't fit one of our two labels. There's a lot of guys who've been thrown into that bucket who have turned into very good players. Um, Adam Eaton was another guy that Diamondbacks traded who kind of fit into that mold where it's like, well, we don't think he's a great center fielder and we don't think he's going to uh, hit enough to, for a corner, so he's a fourth outfielder. And now Adam Eaton's a five-win player or something like that. So if Hanniger turns into that kind of player, uh, I think I think the Mariners will be very happy with this trade. Right. Um, and I, I suppose that Jason Hayward is another – I mean, he's, uh, in terms of players – who have entered free agency uh, with that sort of ambiguity. Uh, He made out pretty well, I suppose. Right. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that um, teams are starting to value average or slightly above average hitters who – who provide a lot of value defensively. And, um, the, you know, we don't know that Hanniger is that, but it at least looks like he's shown some flashes of maybe being a league average hitter and maybe being a, a guy who could be a plus defensive corner outfielder or a, at least a passable center fielder. And if that's what he is, he's not all that different than even, like, a UNS Cespedes, right? Like, I mean, it's going to sound crazy. You're like, oh, Cameron comped Hanniger to Cespedes. But if you just kind of look at, like, Cespedes as a career WRC plus of, like, 115 or something like that. So if Hanniger's at 105 and the defense is similar. I mean, that's 80% of the value, at least, right? And this, this is going to get $100, $125 million this winter. So, right. uh, Hanniger potentially could be really good. Or, you know, there's, um, there's a case that he maybe, you know, maybe he's Adam Duvall and he's, you know, a guy with some skills, but maybe a, you know, an average player at best. And, um, you know, he'll have a good year here or there, but he's not a franchise piece. I think that's probably what the Diamondbacks saw when they looked at him. So what do you think? So we didn't talk about it when when he signed or you know when he um, joined the the Diamondbacks. But Mike Hazen, in terms of what what we might expect from him, is he is he sort of part of the the new breed of, of front office executive in the mold of uh, those that the you know the the Twins and the Brewers have uh, have recently signed as well? Yeah, absolutely. So he came up through the Red Sox organization during the Epstein years and uh, continued to work under Ben Sherrington, and he was kind of part of that crew, um, definitely leaning in that direction. And then when Dave Dombrowski was hired, he decided to stick around for a year and was uh, Dombrowski's GM, uh, but was clearly the number two in Dombrowski. Not the most analytical of guys in terms of this kind of bent. Um, and I think Hazen saw a chance to be the number one guy and kind of put his stamp on things and be the one to make decisions and not have to answer to somebody else. And um, so he took his chance to get out of Boston a year later um, and, and run the Diamondbacks. And so I think um, Arizona definitely has pivoted more towards the 21st century model of a front office. So who is sort of who are the laggards so far as that's concerned? Because obviously because the Twins – have a new front office now. Yep. Diamondbacks have a new front office. Uh, the Phillies were a team, I think, that was considered to be sort of behind yep. uh, the time so far as I was concerned. But they have a new front office. Yep. The Brewers, not that not that uh, Doug Melvin was considered a dinosaur or anything, but uh. not necessarily the most progressive. So who's? I mean, what is the sort of what are the the, the organizations now that are least? Progressive, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so like the the um, bar has raised, right? So like a few years ago, you could be like, least progressive means they don't they don't care about analytics at all. Like there are no more teams who are that. 
Um, you could maybe say the Padres are probably one of the least analytically inclined teams. AJ Preller, who uh, is their their GM, um, has a scouting background and certainly uh, leans towards um, that side of things. But it's not like the Padres don't have anyone there doing analytics. Uh, you could probably say the same thing with the Marlins um, and maybe even the Braves to a little bit of an extent, as they're scouting first organizations. But none of these teams are like unaware of what on-base percentage is, right? Like, I mean, we've come a very long way where the baseline is much, much higher. Right, right. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. It's changed a lot. There's a lot more of uh, understanding. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Cameron. Yeah. You've done it. I, I was going to announce, I just want to announce publicly that I think Josh Reddick is good. That is neither here nor there. Like, but I think good? that he's going to, I think he's going to be good for the Astros. Uh, good is too vague. Be more specific. Let's see. What did he sign for? Four? I think he'll, I think he'll be worth more than his contract. Okay. Do you think he's going to be a two-win player next year, three-win player, five-win player? Well, he's he signed what? So that he would if he's about if he's worth about eight wins over the course of his contract, then he would be worth right. Yeah, they're paying for an average, uh, slightly above average player. Right. Well, I think he's going to be worth at least ten wins over the course of that contract. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, I think he's going to be. I think he's very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think he's as good as you think, but I think it was a perfectly reasonable contract. Yeah. Helpful player for for an improving team. Yeah. And Jeff Sullivan says they're what? They're entering the top tier or something like this. Yeah, the Astros are going to be pretty good. Is that the example of like a perfect rebuild, in your opinion, how the Astros? I mean, perfect is an overstatement. The Cubs is probably a perfect rebuild. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, I think if they wanted to have a perfect rebuild, they should have taken Chris Bryant and not Mark Appel. But they didn't turn out too well, did it? That was a mistake. Is that with with the current front office? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I should have taken Chris Bryant. <laughs> What's Appel? Appel is he? Uh, uh, he, tra- he, he got he, traded to Philadelphia. Yeah, I know. Is, is he is he Rule Five eligible at this point, or was he added to the forty man? I think he was added. Yeah, you know who is a uh, you know who is Rule Five Rule Five eligible this year? It's a Sherman Johnson. Yeah, he's not going to get taken. Oh, I think he is. Okay, good luck with that. I think he's going to be handed a second base job. <coughs> yeah, in AAA. No, I think. <laughs> I have no inside information, but I, I suspect that the Brewers will be taking him. Okay. Because everything that you would do, the Brewers do? Well, they have seemed to... Uh, they do have uh, done a lot of things that you would do. Aaron Wilkerson? Yeah. Junior Guerra? Junior Guerra. Yeah. Naturally. Yeah. Hey, did, and you also- know, did you know the Brewers just claimed Steve Geitz off waivers? <laughs> I have, I, I'm not up to the minute with that particular move. Guess who got designated for assignment to make room for Steve Geitz? No, who? Adam Walker. Sorry. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. They don't like no. him as much as you thought. Yeah, I'm not actually a huge Adam Brett Walker fan, okay. but I do think he's an interesting. He's an interesting player, right? It's like yeah, right, yeah. Uh, and he probably, I don't know, if you give him 600 plate appearances or whatever, like, wouldn't he kind of do the same thing as Chris Carter, maybe? Yeah, maybe 90% of Chris Carter, and Chris Carter's a replacement-level player, so. Yeah. But they're also kind of a replacement-level team. Yeah, yeah they are. So. But they're, they're, they're also uh, doing a good job with their uh, rebuild, we think, it appears. Yeah. Okay. Dave Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I'm happy about that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Dave. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.